Ethan and Axe. And uh, I, I actually, I got to tell you, I didn't intend necessarily to do that. Um, but this message has just been on my heart and something that I've been studying and reading a lot over this passage. Uh, and I can't really, can't seem to get away from it. So uh, that's, what, uh, that's what I feel like God's led me to tonight. So Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be at. Uh, verse number 7, Acts chapter 6, verse number 7. The Bible says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. They suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly, on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Father, I pray that you would help me tonight. Uh, I, I know I pray this often when I preach, but Lord, I just uh, really all I want to do is just communicate your word effectively and clearly and uh, share what your message is, not what mine is. Uh, and so I pray that you would help me to do that. Just, just clear my mind and help me to be able to say things. Uh, the way you want them said, and just be able to explain and expound your word. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So, uh, you guys should be fairly familiar with the book of Acts as you've been going through that series, but just a little bit of catch up to where we're at as we come to chapter 6 here in this story about Stephen. Uh, the early church is absolutely exploding. Uh, we saw in chapter 2 that on the day of Pentecost, those that gladly received his word, they were baptized, and the same day uh, they were added to the church. The Bible says about 3,000 souls, 3,000 converts on that single day were added to this early New Testament church. In chapters 3 and 4, the disciples are accosted by the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, and uh, they're accosted by them because these, these converts and, and these apostles, they will not stop preaching about this Jesus guy. And they're not a, they're, they're religious leaders. They're not happy about that at all. So Peter and John are thrown into prison for preaching this message. But they're uh, ultimately, uh, the religious leaders talk about it. They let them go and uh, uh, say, you know, they say, well, there's not much we can do right now. They, have, they didn't find any cause uh, to keep them. And so they're released from prison. And this gives the disciples and the apostles and the converts cause to praise and magnify God. And really, it emboldens the disciples. Uh, the Bible says that they were filled with the Spirit and that the house was shaken. And it says that they continued to teach and preach Jesus with boldness. The end of chapter 4 says that the church at this point was a, 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 of one heart, of one soul, of one mind. They were together. They had all things common. They met each other's needs. They were on fire for God. Uh, in chapter 5, we see, uh, of course, the, the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but then we see the apostles performing miracles. We see them healing people. We see them doing uh, wonderful, miraculous things. And this upsets the religious leaders again, that they're, they're telling people about Jesus, and they're preaching the message of Jesus, and they're doing these wonderful works. And so the apostles are cast back into prison 
again. This time, uh, an angel comes and opens the prison doors and tells them, uh, go stand and speak in the temple all the words of this life. And uh, there they go back to the temple and the, uh, the religious leaders, you know, they, they kind of do a double take. Is that, is that the guys we just put in prison? Uh, and, and it was, it was them. They were standing in the temple preaching again about Jesus. And uh, after this, the Bible says, uh, again, that the, the religious leaders threaten them and send them on their way. And the, the verses there tell us at the end of chapter 6, it says that daily, both in the temple, or at the end of chapter 5, I think it was, uh, that daily, both in the temple and from house to house, they ceased not to preach and teach Jesus Christ. I mean, they were consumed with this message of Jesus. They were all about this gospel message that Jesus had brought, so much so that they ceased not in every place possible to continue. I mean, in the temple, which, by the way, that's not like a church. You know, we, when we think temple, they're not going into a friendly, welcoming environment like I'm preaching in tonight. They were going into a hostile environment where the Jewish uh, religious leaders worshipped, and uh, they were teaching a message that was contrary to what those Jewish religious leaders uh, uh, taught and believed. And they were, again, not happy about this. And this, this movement centered around Jesus was just exploding. Um, and so these religious leaders, they hated Jesus. They hated this message. They saw it as blasphemy. Uh, it threatened to tear down their entire religious structure, really. And it seared their pride and their achievements and their accomplishment and their, their pedigree and their, uh, their heritage because it was a message that, that brought us all down to the same level, basically, which we'll look at a little more later. Um, but the man that we see in this story today that we come to uh, is a man named Stephen. He was one of the seven chosen by the apostles to help uh, minister to the needs of the church. Many see him as one of the first deacons. The Bible says that he was full of faith and power, that he was doing great wonders and miracles among the people. Uh, he had obviously in, risen to some level of notoriety among the Jewish religious leaders, uh, because these verses at the end of chapter 6 here tell us that they were disputing with him about what he believed and what he was preaching, uh, but it says that they could not resist the, the spirit and the wisdom with which he spoke. Um, God's hand was all over Stephen, giving him this wisdom and filling him with the spirit, and uh, so as uh, false religions often do, they turned to somewhat more underhanded measures, and it says they suborned men to come and uh, speak against Stephen and say they brought in men to say that he was blaspheming against God and he was blaspheming against Moses and blaspheming against the law, which, by the way, I don't know how you necessarily blaspheme against a man, um, but anyways, they said he was blaspheming against Moses. And so they said that this man, he's, he's claiming, uh, he's speaking against the Old Testament, and he's claiming that Jesus, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth, this religious cult leader, that he's going to come in and he's going to destroy our customs. He's going to destroy our holy place of worship. He's, he's speaking against the law. And again, I mean, they are very, very upset about Stephen's message. And it's hard to really grasp this, I think, uh, unless you've been around Jewish people. Uh, I am incredibly thankful that in college I had the chance to be in Jewish ministry because it gave me a perspective on this that I think we don't always see. Uh, um, I mean, to the Jewish people, uh, they take this incredibly seriously. I mean, this is not just... To the Jewish people, their, their customs and their way of life uh, and um, 
really what is their religion, Judaism. It's not just a religion to them. I mean, it is, it is their entire life. I mean, they grow up, all of their holidays are about this. All of their special gatherings, they, they re- rehearse stories of the Old Testament and they, uh, uh, they you know, teach the law and they're, they're memorizing and studying the Bible their entire lives. And, and it's, it's just, it's everything to them. It, it's, it's their entire heritage. It's their entire identity, really, is their religion. Um, it revolves around their laws and their customs that they ultimately trace back to Moses. Uh, and so that's why they had Moses revered on such a, a high level. Um, but really, honestly, today, it's, they've, they've added so much of their own uh, to it that it's not really even distinguishable as what uh, Moses actually gave to them. But nonetheless, we see these accusations cast at Stephen. And when, what we come to in chapter 7, which is actually what we're going to focus on tonight, is uh, Stephen sort of a defense to these religious leaders and really a sermon and uh, one of my favorite sermons in all of the Bible that we see uh, as he preaches uh, this sermon to the religious leaders. And throughout this sermon, uh, he is building. And uh, I, hope to, I hope to help you see this tonight. He's building with each, with each uh, uh, paragraph. He's building towards a very sharp a very cutting and a very powerful climax that he gets to at the end of the sermon. And I got to tell you, this is uh, uh, a different type of a sermon, I think, than what we're used to probably. Uh, the majority of what I preach today is, is just going to be about uh, helping you grasp and understand what Stephen is saying and what's going on. And then at the end of the sermon, uh, we're basically going to uh, make a few applications from that. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to strap on your thinking caps. Uh, hopefully you got a nap this afternoon after that hour of lost sleep last night. I was up late last night um, actually studying for my, my message that I preached in Clark this morning. Uh, and I actually watched, I got to watch on my phone the time change from 2 to 3, and I watched that hour disappear. Uh, so that was, that was fun. Um, but anyways, strap on those thinking caps, and the, the more that you uh, concentrate as we, we go over this and read through some of this, uh, the less I have to explain and the faster we'll be done. All right. Uh, it, so we're just trying to really grasp what Stephen is saying and see how he's building to this climax and this point that he makes at the end. So let's start in verse number one. The Bible says, then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men, brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein he now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him. When as, he, when as yet he had no child, and God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And so here in this introduction to Stephen's sermon, uh, basically he recounts the story of Abraham and he recounts the promises given to Abraham. He recounts the 400 years that Israel was prophesied that they would suffer and sojourn in a strange land. He recounts the covenants of circumcision uh, given to Abraham, the beginning of the 12 patriarchs that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And I got it like, 
I mean, it took me like three or four times reading this before I finally, like, I think started to understand what was going on. Because I'm reading this and I'm thinking, Stephen, you are speaking to the religious Jewish elite. I mean, they knew this story when they were four years old. And I just think that they've got to be looking at Stephen like, Stephen, what are you talking about? We know all about Abraham. Like, you know, we've got this better than you. But again, I want to help you see how he's building here. So he's recounting those, those things, the story of Abraham, the promises, the covenant, the beginning of the 12 patriarchs. Um, but I think, and this is my opinion, okay? I got to tell you, I'm not positive about this. I, I am positive about the rest of what he says, but this is for free. Uh, I think he's highlighting Abraham's failure as well. And you'll see why uh, as I get to the end of the story. But uh, here's, here's what he says. I never had noticed this before, but he says uh, that uh, he, God of our fathers, God of glory appeared to, father, to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he dwelt in Haran, he said, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. So a land that God had prepared for him. So when I was studying for this, I went back to Genesis 12 and I said, maybe, maybe I missed something in the story of Genesis 12 when Abraham uh, is told to go. I mean, I'd never seen it before, but I went back to Genesis 12, and I noticed some wording here that I, I hadn't really seen before. Also, it says, now the Lord had said unto Abraham. So the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. It doesn't say, now the Lord said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy... It says the Lord had said previously unto Abraham, to get out of thy country and to a place, a land that I am taking you to. And so I, again, I thought, well, maybe I missed something. So I went back to chapter, to chapter 11 and I started reading a little bit more. And I realized that Abraham, and, and you can see this if, if you have maps in the back of your Bible. I checked my maps and it kind of shows this as well. Um, that Abraham left the area that he lived in with the Chaldeans and he moved to Haran. And they stopped there. And until his father died, he lived in Haran. And again, that's, that's my opinion, okay? Um, but I think Stephen might be highlighting that Abraham didn't go all the way uh, to where God had told him to go until a later time. And we see other fa- uh, failures in Abraham's life as well. But anyways, uh, uh, I think that's part of what Stephen is pointing at here in this first section. He says, uh, God, God had told Abraham in Mesopotamia, to go to the land that I've called you to, and it says he dwelt in Haran. And then he recounts again the, uh, the covenants, the promises, those things. All right, let's go, to, let's go to verse number nine. Moving on to this second section of his sermon, he says, And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. And Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sikkim and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sikkim. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. And so here 
We see uh, he's talked about Abraham, and he moves into the story. He's just following chronologically. He moves into the story of Joseph, and he says uh, the patriarchs and Joseph, and he highlights a story here. He highlights the story that God raised up Joseph to be a a savior and a redeemer of his family that would ultimately become the nation of Israel. And then again, I think he highlights that they rejected Joseph and they sold him into slavery. God rescues Israel through the one that he raised up, through Joseph. Israel grows and flourishes, flourishes in Egypt till the 400 years that God had prophesied they would sojourn there in a strange land. And that leads us into the story of Moses, which we're going to look at next. And, and again, I'm just, again, I'm thinking they know all about Joseph. Stephen, what are you getting at? Well, he, he, he is getting there. Follow along with me. Verse 19, he says, uh, um, the same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil and treated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. The next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and he would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush, And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses whom they refused saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So here he recounts the story of Moses. And in verses 24 through 28, he highlights that this, uh, this Moses uh, was rejected by his brethren who he tried to keep from fighting. And in verse 27, they say, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? And they rejected this, this, uh, this Moses. In verse 35, Stephen makes a point of the fact that this rejected Moses, God raised up to be a, uh, a rescuer and a redeemer and a leader of his people. And, and as we think about the accusations cast at Stephen, I think the picture starts to become a little bit more clear. We're not to the climax of his sermon yet, but what did they accuse him of? They said, uh, you are threatening Moses. You are blaspheming against Moses. And you are are blaspheming against the law and, and the things that we hold dear. And so he highlights Moses that this Moses was rejected by the children of Israel and God raised him up to be a redeemer and a rescuer of them. 
verse 37, Moses told, uh, 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 Stephen recounts how Moses told the children of Israel that God is going to raise up a prophet in the future that he says will be similar to me or that will be uh, like unto me. And again, I think the picture is starting to get a little bit clearer here. Stephen says, Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet and a leader that resembled Moses. Well, what did Moses' story look like? We just went over it. He was rejected by his brethren, but God made him to be the one that would rescue his people out of bondage. Hmm, sounds like somebody I know, but we're not there yet. Uh, So let's keep going. We're getting close to what Stephen's point is getting at. This leads us into a recounting of uh, Israel's idolatry in verse uh, verse 37. It says, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, we already read that verse. Verse 38 says, this is he that was in the church, or that the word church meaning congregation. This is he that was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel which spake unto him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. They made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Here, uh, he, he, Stephen says that Moses, this man that was uh, in the congregation in the wilderness and leading them, he received the living words of God on Mount Sinai, and he says, our fathers, our patriarchs, our, our heritage that we look up to, he says, they would not obey the commands that were given to them. And in fact, he says, rather, their hearts turned back to Egypt, which to me is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, they just got rescued out of Egypt. God heard their groaning and their cries and their affliction and all the things that they were under in Egypt, and God rescues them out of Egypt, and then they get to where God has brought them, and they say, we want to go back to where God just rescued us out of. Um, and then they literally, I mean, this, this story just, I, it doesn't matter how many times I read it, it absolutely blows me away. Uh, he, he doesn't specifically tell this story here, at least not all of the details of it, but uh, um, they, they threw their jewels and their gold and all of their stuff together, and with Aaron, and they made a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the living words of Almighty God. They throw their jewels together. They create a golden calf. And then not only that, but they look at this calf and they have the audacity to say, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I would not want to be next to the person that made that statement about that golden calf. I got to tell you, the God that brought them to the Red Sea and parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground and then he wipes out the Egyptians and then he brings them through the desert and he gives them manna to eat and he gives them water uh, uh, out of the rock and he provides for them and he takes them through the waters of Mara and he leads them to Mount Sinai where his presence is on the mountain and then they literally make a golden calf. I know, Brother Jeremy, I know you love calves, but you probably wouldn't worship one, right? And they say, this calf brought us 
and rescued us out of Egypt. And I can understand why God was furious at that point. And so Stephen, uh, in his message, he highlights uh, idolatry, the failures of their, their past. Verses 44 to 50, uh, we'll read those real quick. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him in house, albeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Now Stephen's about to make a very, uh, again, we're, getting, we're almost there. Stephen's about to make a point. Um, but let's talk about this real quick. He recounts the story of the tabernacle. Uh, and, and again, why, why would he bring the tabernacle up? Think about it for a second. You don't have to answer. Uh, because they accused him of speaking against the tabernacle, and he's going to destroy their holy place. And so he recounts the story of the tabernacle and how they brought this tabernacle with them when they came into the promised land with, with Jesus, which you've you got to understand Jesus and Joshua are basically the same name. Um, so when he says Jesus uh, in, in the Greek, he's, he's speaking of Joshua and how they came into the promised land with Joshua and uh, how ultimately uh, they turned that into a temple. To, and, and I think a sincere heart to give God a better place to dwell. But in verse 48, he makes the point that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. The entire universe, he said, is God's throne, and the earth is his, his footstool. In other words, he's saying God cannot be contained in a temple, in an edifice that we can build. God created all of these things. And so the religious leaders, furious that he was saying, that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and destroy the customs. Uh, uh, Stephen highlights this because the temple and their religious practices and their customs had really become an idolatry to them. They held the temple and their place of worship and their customs in such high esteem, and yet they missed the one who was greater than the temple, which was Jesus. They said, oh, the temple, oh, our, our holy place, oh, our customs and our, our laws and our rituals and our worship. But that temple made with hands was never God's ultimate plan. That's why the veil of the temple was rent in twain, because God now said, I'm going to dwell with man. You are, we come to find out later in the Bible, that we are God's temple. And in Ephesians, which we've been studying in our, our teen class at night, we learn that he says that you as the church and at together, we fitly frame up the temple of God, because God dwells in us because of the gospel and because of what he's done. And uh, that, is, that is a beautiful truth, a wonderful truth, one that I love, uh, but it's one that we don't necessarily have time to get into today because uh, really just this, this point about the tabernacle is what leads us into Stephen's message here. In verse 51, read with me. And, and imagine, imagine that I'm standing up here and I'm saying something like this to you, Okay. Listen as I read this. He says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Stephen's message 
I mean, as, as, as we read this and we grasp what's actually going on, it is brilliantly poignant. I mean, he has built and built to this point, and I can just imagine this group of religious leaders all this time uh, in his message before thinking, Stephen, we know all these things. We know about Abraham, and we know about Joseph, and we know about Moses. Stephen, what's your point? What are you getting at? And that's what I thought when I was first reading through this. I was like, Stephen, why are you... Why are you telling all this? Why are you talking about all this? Uh, again, these people knew these stories like nobody else did. Uh, they had been immersed in it since they were children. And so what's his point? He is recounting a history and he is recounting a story of failure after failure after failure. And his point is that they missed it. Their fathers missed God's plan time and time again. Their fathers uh, flat out rejected God time and time again. They went against God time and time again. The prophets that God sent to bring them back to him, they, they hated and they persecuted, he says. Uh, and now when the promised redeemer comes to earth, born as a baby to save them, to rescue them, not from Egypt, but from their sins, they missed it. And instead of welcoming him as Messiah, they betrayed him and they hung him on a cross. And Stephen's message cuts through their pride like a knife as he, he basically criticizes and tears down their entire religious structure, their entire identity structure. Uh, in their minds, they thought we are children of the great patriarchs. We are the faithful ones that follow Moses, that keep God's law. We are God's chosen people. When I think of their mindset, uh, I think of a, uh, a song from, most of you have probably never heard it, uh, but the, uh, the old musical of the Hunchback of Notre, uh, Notre Dame, uh, Claude Frollo says in one of his songs, he's praying to the saints, and he says, uh, you know I am a righteous man. Of my virtue I am justly proud. You know I'm so much purer than the common, vulgar, weak, licentious crowd. And that was the Jewish elitist mindset. I, I, you know I'm so much purer than, than the common man. And Stephen completely shatters this in this sermon as he recounts their history. And he says, you betrayed and you killed the just one that God sent and the ones he sent before to tell of the just one. And then one final blow at the end here. He says, uh, you who were given the law by angels and yet did not keep it. By this point, uh, I mean, they were so angry they couldn't take it anymore. And I really, this is my opinion again, uh, you know, take it for what it is. I think Stephen had more to say. And I really wish that I could hear the rest of what he had to say. Uh, but it says that they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then it's like children, it says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses, uh, excuse me, and uh, the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And as they, like again, like children, um, they were so upset they didn't want to listen to any more of what he had to say. And so they stopped their ears and they said, la, 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 we're not listening, Stephen. And then they ran on him uh, and they stoned him. And the Bible says that they killed him. And uh, again, I, 
I wish I could have heard the rest of his message, but they cut him short. Uh, and so, Stephen, in looking into heaven and seeing, he says, I see, I, they knew who he was talking about, by the way, when he says, I see that the heavens open, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Uh, they knew he was talking about Jesus, and so this added to their fury. But Stephen, in his, uh, his spirit and his humility, he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And it says that a man named Saul, who would later be the Apostle Paul, uh, was standing there and heard this sermon and watched this man die. And so again, uh, a little bit different sermon. Um, that's, that's, that's Stephen's message. And my hope, my heart, is that you understand and, and you grasp what he was getting at. So here's some takeaways uh, that I would like to, to share from this message. And there may be more here than what I have to share, but here's my takeaways that I think God was getting at through this, this story. Number one, it is possible to be very religious and yet be in opposition to God and his purposes. The Jewish people, they were very zealous about Jehovah God. They were very zealous about keeping his law and his commandments. In fact, all of these statutes and ordinances that they had added to God's law, it was in an effort to never break the law that God gave them. And so, you know, uh, an example of, of how they, they didn't want to break the commandment that thou shalt not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The, the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah. So they said, well, if we're not going to break that, let's just never say his name. So they started saying Hashem, which meant the name, uh, just not calling him God, but calling him the name and uh, in an effort not to break that law. But uh, in, in their efforts and in their zeal and in their religious uh, uh, performance, they failed to see the greater purposes of God. They started placing all of their religious structure, their traditions, their rituals above God. And God's people, God's chosen people, got to the point that when God sent the Redeemer to rescue them, God sent the Messiah, their, their long-awaited king, they didn't even recognize him. Because their religious structure and their customs left no place for Jesus. Listen, there are vast amounts of people in our world today and in our communities even who are very religious, but they are very lost. Jesus said that there will be many uh, who say when they come to that judgment day, Lord, did we not do wonderful works in thy name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not, uh, were we not, in essence, very zealous for you? And he says that he will say to them in that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I, I never knew you. And I, I don't know anyone's heart here tonight, um, but I just wanted to plead with you about something that goes along with this point I think it would be an absolute tragedy to come to the end of your life and realize that you were very religious, but you were lost. And so if you've never come to Jesus, there is one way to the Father, and that is through repentance, which is a change of mind, and through faith and believing and accepting the gospel of Jesus. So number one, uh, takeaway, it's possible to be very religious and yet be in opposition to the purposes and plan of God. Number two, if we are going to be effective in our message, we must know the scriptures. Stephen, he could not have stood before this group and given this message the way he did if he did not know this book the way he did. And if we are going to reach out to a lost world, and if we are going to reach out to religious people that think they're okay but are not actually accepting Jesus and are not actually saved, we are going to have to know this book, and we are going to have to have a close relationship with the author of this book. Um, we're not going to be able to reason with the world about Jesus if we do not know 
the scriptures and we cannot take them to the scriptures and show them who Jesus is. Number three, proclaiming the truth will sometimes come at a high price. For Stephen, proclaiming this truth came at the cost of his life. Again, they plugged their ears, they surrounded him, and they stoned him. And listen, we here at Bible Baptist uh, and, and now up in uh, Clark at First Baptist, we may not be the most popular church when we proclaim truth from this pulpit. And you may not be the most popular person when you stand on truth in your personal life. The true gospel of Jesus will always offend the religious crowd and the Pharisees because it, it destroys their ability to boast in their accomplishments and their accolades and, and the things that they've done. The gospel of Jesus, it brings us all down to the same level and it says that we all are equally sinful, that we are all equally in need of God's forgiveness and cleansing. And so that message will offend people. The truth will offend. We don't have to be offensive, but the truth will often offend and again, our personal lives, it may come at a cost to stand for truth. But I firmly believe that as Stephen came to the end of his life, he looked up and he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That in that moment, it was worth it. And I believe when we come to the end of our lives, and if we stand before Jesus and we hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we walk into his presence and into his arms, uh, it's going to be worth it. The Apostle Paul would later pen the words, again, this is the same one that stood there and watched Stephen die, would later pen the words, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I think the old hymn is what says it best. It says it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes.